1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing Labour's surprise victory in the Peterborough by-election, what it means for the Tories and the Brexit Party. Plus, we'll be checking in with the race to be the next Prime Minister and discuss who's going to make it through the first round. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, deputy opinion editor Miranda Green and political correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you. all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also like a good positive review. So we had a by-election this week in the cathedral city of Peterborough. It's a pretty Brexit-supporting place, with 61% voting to leave in the 2016 referendum and 38% supporting the Brexit party at the recent European elections. All eyes were on its candidate Mike Green to see whether the new party could break through. It came close but didn't make it. Labour managed to squeak back in and the Tory vote collapsed by 25%. So George Parker, we had a lot of focus on Peterborough because... These by elections are a good barometer of where politics are, where the campaign is, that sort of thing. And the Brexit party did do pretty well. They came very close to taking the seat, but it's a clear knockback for Nigel Farage. They haven't got their first MP in Westminster. It's looking a bit like old UKIP, which is being a very good and successful presser force, but not actually good at national politics.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it is a significant disappointment for Nigel Farage. And you can tell that from the fact he was sneaked out of the back of the counting room just before the result was declared, because he had that precious thing of momentum after the European elections, scoring over 30% in the polls. And Peterborough was seen as the next stepping stone, wasn't it? It was seen as an important part to show that the Brexit Party could actually win seats at Westminster. And as you say, they failed. We shouldn't dismiss the fact it was a considerable achievement to go from nothing to getting close to winning the seat. I mean, that is still quite an achievement. And as Nigel Farage fairly pointed out, His party had no voter records. They didn't know where Brexit supporters lived. It was done from scratch. So it was an uphill task. But nevertheless, the expectations were set... And the fact they failed to meet the expectations was a clear disappointment.
1: So Miranda Green, this by-election was caused by the Labour Party and the old rule of thumb for by-elections is the party that prompts it normally gets a kicking and Labour have broken with that record there and this is because Fiona Onasanya, who was the MP, who again squeaked in with a tiny majority back in the 2017 election. She was found guilty of perverting the course of justice and served a short prison sentence. And she was one of the first ever MPs to suffer a recall petition where they, I think it was 10% of the constituency said they wanted her booted out. They were successful. And yet Labour somehow still managed to get back in. I think it's a testament to, despite everything that goes on in national politics, what matters is data. It matters campaigning and getting out the vote. And the Labour Party, despite all of its problems on Brexit and anti-Semitism, it's still a good political campaigning force.
3: I do think that's true. And particularly if you combine the Labour on the ground operation with all the drawbacks that the Brexit party had, as George says, as a startup without the data, etc. I think that it was a fairly unique circumstance because of this recall. I mean, to have an MP who falls foul of the law to that extent, to say that your brand is a bit tarnished by having somebody end up in jail is putting it mildly, you know, so actually Labour did doubly well considering those circumstances. On the other hand, we have a Conservative government in total disarray having to hold a leadership contest while they're in power because their previous leader, who they chose while in power, has totally failed in her one job, i.e. delivering Brexit, against a background of a Leave constituency that you've said. And for Labour not to kind of romp home in those circumstances should be a, a cautionary message for them in terms of preparing for the next general election. My great fear, though, is that because Labour got away with it in Peterborough, which is what they did, that the Corbyn leadership team will feel vindicated in not listening to those in their party that want them to change position on Brexit. That's the real significance of this result, I think.
1: George, if we look at what this means for the leadership contest, all of the campaigns have been out saying that the result of Peterborough vindicates whatever message they're trying to put forward. That if you're the Boris Johnson campaign, you're saying, well, this is proof of why we need Boris, because he's the one who can defeat the Brexit party and defeat Jeremy Corbyn. If you're, say, you know, Jeremy Hunt's campaign, you might be thinking, well, actually... Boris filmed his campaign launch video in Peterborough and was campaigning there. Maybe he hasn't actually got what it takes to reach those kind of voters who we have got to win back. Because, as Miranda said, this is the kind of seat the Tories should be winning. It's a classic marginal. And Labour only just got in last time. And If the Tories are morphing towards becoming a Brexit-orientated force, then Peterborough has to be on the list of a seat they've got to get back.
2: I think this result is helpful to those hard Brexiters campaigning for the leadership, people like Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab, because it allows them to say, look, this is what happens if the Brexit party, Nigel Farage, get a run like this. They split the Tory vote and you let Labour in. So it's helpful to them. Now, it could have been more helpful to them if Nigel Farage had been beaming on our television screens on Friday morning rather than skulking out of the back door, because had he won, I think the Conservative Party would have been in full-scale panic and that would have given rocket boosters to the Boris Johnson campaign or monkey glands, as Andrew Mitchell rather confusingly called it uh, earlier in the week in an interview with the FT. So I think it was helpful to them. I think the other candidates will try to make the best of it, the more moderate sort of mainstream candidates. So people like Matt Hancock, for example, saying, well, this goes to show that our real opponent is Jeremy Corbyn. We need a candidate who can show how you beat Labour, not the Brexit party. Everyone's going to spin it to their own advantage. I would say On balance, it's more helpful to Boris Johnson than to the sort of more centrist candidates.
3: That's definitely the case. But I think also, you know, there's quite interesting things about this by-election in terms of the candidates as well, because it's true that the Brexit Party didn't succeed in making their much longed for breakthrough to Westminster. And you you can say that that party, although it's more respectable now than UKIP has become, it still represents the populist right and anti-immigrant feeling, etc. They've actually been beaten by a Labour candidate who will now be the sitting MP for Peterborough, who has some questionable views around the anti-Semitism mess in the Labour Party. So actually, if you look at the reactions to the result this morning as well, it's way more complicated than it looks just in terms of party politics, in terms of the kind of toxicity on all sides. The Labour Party really has to get a grip of this. They've got an Equality and Human Rights Commission investigation pending into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. This is a really big mess for them. And to have your own supporters not celebrating your victory at a by-election is also pretty bad. I spent
1: a bit of time in Peterborough and when you looked at the Brexit Party's candidate they had there George Mike Green he's pretty much everything you could have wanted he's been a, on reality TV he's a millionaire a self-made businessman he was a trustee of the cathedral and when he went around the town centre with him everybody knew who he was you know one person said to me he's our local Alan Sugar so in that sense they couldn't have done better in there and they had lots of activists as well that you know on the big campaign day last Saturday the Brexit Party had 1,200 people, whereas the Conservatives had scores or dozens, you know, really not at all. But then one of the local Tories said to me, they're wandering idiots, is how he described the Brexit Party activists, because they were often just standing there with their flags and their banners, but they weren't doing the things you have to do in an election, which is target the doors, get the leaflets, get out the vote. And it does just show that despite all of the rise of populism and all the airwave coverage the Brexit Party get, proper politics still matters
2: yeah I mean, I mean we were saying earlier on the ground campaigning really matters, and it's hard to imagine a seat that was better place for the Brexit party to win you know with a sixty or one percent leave vote in two thousand sixteen well known candidate off the back of European elections. The problem the Brexit party will have now is to keep the momentum going because if you're a small start up party, you need momentum, you need to be shown to be sort of throwing rocks at the establishment, getting people worried. If you look like you're a loser, as I mentioned, walking out the back door rather than the front door with a big smile on your face that changes the dynamic and perceptions and we saw that very clearly with Change UK, didn't we? The fact they arrived on the scene, everyone talked about the fact that they were going to take over the Liberal Democrats, even though the Liberal Party's been around for over 150 years. And suddenly, whoosh, they've disappeared because they didn't get that breakthrough in the European elections.
1: We should actually mention Change UK briefly, Miranda, because they polled 0% <laughs> in the Peterborough by election, which is not a surprise because they split this week, the splitters split, split. that six of the MPs who joined Change UK, two of the Tories, and some of the Labour left the party. And essentially, it was because they 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 wanted to merge with the Liberal Democrats or have some kind of tight electoral alliance. And I think it does just show with Peterborough as well that these forces are interesting, but it still comes back to the big traditional parties. And you could see a situation in six months time where the vote once again coalesces around the Tories with a new leader and Labour still being Labour. Maybe they will move their Brexit position by autumn.
3: I don't think that's necessarily true, but it might well be. And I think we don't yet know whether the next general election will follow the same pattern as 2017, i.e. people being forced back into these two kind of monolithic red and blue voting blocks because of the shadow of the Brexit referendum. We don't yet know whether that polarisation will take that red-blue form or or whether it will take a more Brexit versus Remain form at the next election, which could show really different voting patterns, actually. And when we're on the subject of recalls causing by-elections, there's another recall petition underway in Brecon and Radnor. That could be a very different sort of by-election, where the Lib Dems are very well placed to take the seat from the Tories. So then you could have another conversation there about the forces of Remain. So I think a lot of things are in flux
1: and just coming back to George's point, what do you think this will do for the Brexit party's momentum? Because you've seen Nigel Farage on the TV screens, if not grinning this morning, at least being quite chirpy and saying, We came a very good second place, we've come from nowhere, we're getting better all the time. But at the same time, it does just feel like they've missed their chance slightly.
3: They were wrong to shuffle him out the back way last night, because that is kind of loser this is from behavior. The count. Yeah, from the count. That's loser behaviour. This morning they're doing the right thing, spinning it a victory. because actually coming from nowhere to nearly take a seat like Peterborough, which has always been a traditional red on blue fight, is a phenomenal achievement. If you look back at the early days of the SDP, some of those early by-elections, they came a good second and that was thought to be amazing. And your point about sort of wandering idiots from the Brexit party just standing on a corner with their pale blue flag, in terms of affecting the direction of the Conservative Party, that's all they need to be doing and they terrify the Tories.
1: And finally, George, what about this means for Labour? Because as Miranda said before, the MP, Lisa Forbes, who is now being elected for Peterborough, has controversies in the past involving anti-Semitism, liking Facebook posts and what have you. Very similar to things with Jeremy Corbyn here. And you've seen a lot of Labour MPs like Wes Streeting coming out saying, this is totally unacceptable. We have to get to grips to this. So first of all, there's going to be more pressure on that, I think. And second, those who wanted to push Jeremy Corbyn towards a second referendum now have had a bit of a setback because they're going to really struggle to get that case made because, in a way, Peterborough has vindicated his Brexit policy.
2: Well, the things that Jeremy Corbyn is most under pressure on, first of all, is his opaque Brexit policy, and the second thing is anti-Semitism. And, regrettably, I think you could argue, the fact that this Labour candidate has won has given Jeremy Corbyn some breathing space on both. I mean, you can imagine what we'd be talking about had she lost... And how much pressure Jeremy Corbyn would then be under. But the fact that she'd won actually gives him some space, might just about get him through to the summer break. And maybe we'll see all this rearing its head, I'm sure we will, in the autumn leading up to the Labour conference season.
1: It was another busy week for the Conservative Party leadership contest, with things formally kicking off on Friday when Theresa May handed in her notice as leader of the party. Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt launched their campaign videos while the first hostings took place behind closed doors in Parliament. Meanwhile, the rules for the contest were set out, two candidates dropped out, and there was a lot of talk about proroguing Parliament. So, Robert Shrimsey, let's just begin with where we are in this race, that once again, Boris Johnson does seem to be in pole position to win. He seems to have had a good week. He launched his video, which was him on the stump in Peterborough, which looks a little bit unfortunate, as we were talking about before, given the by-election result. But it was very much, here's Boris talking to ordinary people that only he can win back with that unique charm of his, as some people would put
4: it. Yes. I mean, I think the Boris Johnson strategy has been extremely interesting to what reminded me very much of the period when he got very serious about becoming mayor of London. So the Boris Johnson strategy is to see as little of him as possible. And where you do see him, it's an immensely controlled environment. So he's released a video, and it is in the terms of these things, a video that you can see is precision in its strategy. The message to Conservative Party members, which we have to remember are the only people that matter in this election, message was, cheer up, deliver Brexit. I'm the only person who can save your seats. That's fundamentally what it was. That is his message. It's a message that resonates with a lot of Conservative MPs including a number of remain-minded people who just think Boris is the only one who can get them out of the hole that he's put them in. And so that's been his strategy. He remains clearly the front-runner. You don't talk to any other camp that thinks he's not going to make it into the final two. There are several people who think he could even make it at the first ballot. He's certainly, I think, going to get fairly close. And so it's all about the war for second place and then the ability to take him on afterwards. And I think one of the things we have to remember about this contest is that We don't really know what's going on. Everybody's lying about the number of nominations they have. And so until we see the first ballot, we can't make highly intelligent judgments about how it's going to go. But in terms of the noise being made, most of the running apart from Boris, seems to be being made to the Remain side of him rather than the Brexit side of him. And it's a battle between Matt Hancock and Jeremy Hunt and Michael Gove and maybe Sajid Javid to be what one might call the institutional candidate against him. Dominic Raab, the person who seems to be to the outside of him on Brexit, doesn't seem to be making as much running at the moment. These
1: videos, Laura Hughes, are quite interesting because this is really the first Conservative leadership contest to be done on social media because the last proper contest in 2005 was at the beginning of the blogosphere and sites like Guido Falk's Conservative Home, Dale's Blog, and the Spectators Coffee House were where the contest played out. This time, though, it's all about how you're appealing on social media, and I think these videos are a very interesting barometer of the campaign. So, as Robert said, Boris's video was speaking very well to those Conservative Party members who just want a winner and someone who makes them feel good about being a Tory. And that's what Boris's did. Jeremy Hunt's video, which we also saw this week, spoke to his thing of trying to show himself as the entrepreneur, the upstart despite the fact he comes from quite a wealthy background. But then there's also been disappointing ones like Sajid Javid's, for example, for him to speaking to the camera in a very monotonous tone that was not particularly exciting. And it tells you so much about where the campaigns are, how they're portraying themselves through Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
0: Yeah, I mean, some of them have been really cringeworthy and awkward to watch. You have Dominic Raab. Which one Raab. comes to mind? I mean, Dominic Raab's one was pretty... Staggering, It's a really awkward shot of him looking into the distance and then looking straight into the camera and he's just stood outside Parliament talking straight at you, whereas the Boris one was so much better because it showed him talking to people out and about. There was a bit of music... Rory Stewart, who realistically doesn't have a chance of winning this contest, actually his campaign has been all about social media, innovative videos. He's going out around the country, walking and talking, inviting people to come and challenge him. And his videos are actually quite amusing to watch because he's quite an eccentric character. But also the ones that really work are the ones of him with crowds around him, people talking, people engaging. Unfortunately for him that's not necessarily the strategy that's going to get him elected. Because
1: You spoke to Rory Stewart this week for an interview where he talked about candidates who are making unrealistic promises about no deal. We can guess who those are, unrealistic spending promises. But the thing that struck me about Rory's campaign, it's brilliant for his brand. People who have never heard of Rory Stewart in a political sense, they might have known him from his books or TV, now are aware that he's doing these slightly odd walking tours. But he's not been speaking to the only constituency that matters, which is MPs. And at the moment, according to what we have on the FT's track of who's backing whom. He's going to get knocked out next Thursday in the first voting round if he doesn't get more MPs on board.
0: Yeah, he's confident he's going to get through the first round and that he hasn't really talked about who he's going to get in the second round. He has got the backing of David Gork, Ken Clark. Some interesting figures are supporting him. But, you know, his strategy has been sort of extraordinary. Instead of speaking to Tory party members and MPs, he really is just talking to members of the public and they don't actually matter in this contest. And his message is also incredibly risky. He's saying the only way to get through this Brexit impasse is to back the prime minister's deal, which has failed three times. His argument is quite logical. He says a no Deal's not going to happen and we're not going to be able to renegotiate a better deal. It actually makes sense. And he's coming out as someone who is straight talking Honest, realistic. But unfortunately, the Tory party membership don't want to hear back the PM's deal. They want to hear what Boris and Rob are saying. I do think for all the
4: things that they're going to talk about, getting more money into schools and Sajid Java wants more police on the beat as if he hadn't been Home Secretary for the last mm-hmm. year, for all the things that they want to talk about of other policy, the fact is this is a one issue leadership election. It's who's going to get the Brexit I want and save my party. That's the Conservative view on this. And the staggering thing is, none of them have actually got anything remotely clear to say on how they're going to do it. The no dealers, the let's resurrect the May dealers, none of them have actually set out something which when you look at it dispassionately you think okay yes I can see that pathway through the woods none of them have got anything like this and it's really really striking Can I offer the counter view to that which no. is that a lot no, of no, people No no you can't I'm sorry
1: on <laughs> a lot of people are making the case that the way to get this deal through is to do something about the backstop now and Theresa May had tried so many times to get changing legal advice and to get that backstop changed but do you not think there is a chance Robert that you get a new PM comes in with fresh Imputers a new cabinet, and can somehow demonstrate the EU, look, if you do this... By October 31st? Well, the date is another question, because it, does anyone
4: realistically think we're going to leave on October the 31st? Well, apparently all the leading candidates... Which is think disingenuous. That, I mean, the scale of terror and panic within the Conservative Party at the moment is existential. So they're not just talking about being beaten. Could we survive? Are we going to be destroyed as a party? These people are running around in sheer terror. And... That's part of the Boris Johnson appeal in a way. It's like, cheer up, it'll be all right. I'll make everything fine. And oh, good, good, Boris is going to make everything fine. And it's tragic to watch in some respects. As to the backstop, yes, look, it's tremendously easy to say we're going to renegotiate the backstop. Indeed, Theresa May spent a year saying it, but the fundamental fact remains that we're only one side of the negotiations. Unless the other side seems prepared to countenance it, you're not going to get very far. And even if the European Union is at some point prepared to countenance it, you've got the first European Council meeting that could take place on October 17th, just a handful of days before the apparently written-in-blood Brexit date that Boris has committed us to. You've got a new European commission to be sworn in. The idea that you can both renegotiate the backstop and still leave on time is for the birds. One of those things has to give. I think that's true. Laura, let's talk about the first leadership
1: hustings we had this week. So the One Nation Group, this is about 60 or so moderate Tory MPs, the mushy centre of the party and they've been trying to counter the power of the ERG, the European Research Group of Brexit supporting MPs and they held these two husting sessions on Tuesday and Wednesday this week. And Very oddly, they were held in Parliament behind closed doors. There were no journalists allowed in, but I think it's fair to say that all the campaigns let it be known what all their people were saying inside the room. So it was trying to pretty much have a sort of cup against the wall and trying to hear what was going on in there. And the general sense seems to be that Boris did okay in that you know, one person said to me he didn't F up in this thing. And that was actually what they were expecting he might well do. But then others like Andrea Ledsom and Dominic Raab went to those hustings and said, you know what, actually, let's have a really hard Brexit 31st, come what may. And also both raised the idea of proroguing Parliament, essentially saying if Parliament tries to stop a no deal, then I'll just go to the Queen and ask her to shut it down for the duration. And that's really set tempers flying this week.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Andrea Ledsom later clarified that she actually sought some advice on this, whether or not it was possible. She's gone she, to the Commons clerks to yeah, talk about it. Yeah, and was told it wasn't possible. And that's not stopping Dominic Raab, who's insisting it can, and that will be a way to force through a no deal. But John Burko, the Remain voting Speaker of the Commons, who we've seen take the law into his own hands multiple times, has said that, that just can't happen. And, and it's so obviously the case that it can't happen, it's not even worth stating. And I think that's probably fair. You would have absolute uproar. But it's interesting to see how they've all done. Some MPs actually said Sajid Javid had done all right in the hustings. He had a bit of stardust to him. But then unfortunately, when they all stood around in the corridors after that, that stardust factor slightly failed. And Michael Gove really interestingly, has set himself out on a different path to Boris and Dominic Raab and Andrea Leadsom by saying that this date of the 31st of October is an arbitrary date. He won't be fixed to it. It would be madness to crash out without a deal if you could ask for an extra few days or weeks, he says, to try and negotiate a better deal.
4: I think Dom Raab blew it this week on this. I think the prorogation, the failure to kill that idea was a terrible mistake when your first port of call is electorate only of MPs. I think if you could just imagine the reaction that they and society would have if a Jeremy Corbyn government decided to prorogue parliament because it couldn't get what it wanted through, it would be declaring the end of democracy. It's a staggering thing for him to countenance. I don't know what on earth possessed him to do so. And I think it will cost him very, very dearly. And I will be very surprised if he now makes the last two.
1: Well, the argument, I think, from the Raab camp would be is that you have what a lot of hardline breaks to see is this difference between the views of Parliament and the views of the yeah, but Yeah, I mean, but
4: with respect, I mean, I get what the argument from the Raab camp might be, but it is a failure to see themselves as others might see them and just understand what it is you're saying. We're going to essentially abolish Parliament until we've got what we wanted. It's an extraordinary statement for an elected politician to make a sort of democracy. Yeah. It's, it's bonkers. And we've also had Commons law, from Dominic Raab with
1: regard to feminism, which keep coming up again and again. He defended his comments saying he's not a feminist, but he's also defended comments in the past, he said, about women doing extra work at home. You know, what is he trying to achieve with these kind of comments? What is the message there?
0: I think that he's dug himself a bit of a hole and he almost needs to stay there because he doesn't want to be seen to be backtracking. But the reaction from female Tory MPs is very telling, I mean, getting text messages from them and then from after that Hustings about the comments he made and, and how he mocked in at home. It's just extraordinary extraordinary defence of his position and he obviously got in trouble with Theresa May a couple of years ago and he described feminists I think as obnoxious bigots it looks really bad the general feeling and the vibe that I get particularly from female Tory MPs is that they would not be comfortable with him as PM that he's not going to appeal to female voters
1: Let's talk about the rules Robert because the rules for this contest are decided in two phases you have the parliamentary stage and then the membership phase the parliamentary stage has started today as we're recording with Theresa May handing her letter in saying she's resigned as leader of the party. On Monday, we then have the nominations open and close on the same day. And then we have the first round of voting next Thursday. And it's a bit different to how it was in the past, because they want to strip out so many of these candidates that are
4: now running. Yeah, where it used to work was essentially, you held as many exhaustive ballots as you needed to whittle the field down to two. And only one person, only the bottom candidate in each ballot was eliminated under the rules. In fact, however, what tended to happen was that any candidate who was miles adrift dropped out. So what they've essentially done is institutionalised that so that they don't have any discretion about it. And I think from memory, any candidate who gets fewer than 16 votes in the first ballot will be eliminated. But I think anyone who got fewer than that was probably going to drop out anyway. So- The thing is, it's fine. It's a perfectly sensible thing to do. But the truth is they're telescoping the wrong end of the contest because the thing that's going to take time is the membership ballot. Whittling the list of candidates down to two was only going to take a handful of days anyway. It helps the front runners. It clears the field quicker. It's going to force people to make decisions a little bit quicker. And I think one thing that's useful is people who are minded to back one of the edge case candidates at the start will be forced to make their serious decision faster and
1: the result of that law is we saw two candidates dropped out this with James Cleverly and Kit Malthouse who I think both ran because they wanted to make sure they got a cabinet job on the other end of this and that's why they put their names forward but neither of them attracted much support they're both from the 2015 intake of MPs and lots of MPs from that intake you know your Johnny Mercer Tom Tuggan decided not to run this time because they felt it was too soon for them but they threw their hats in and James Cleverly seemed to start to have something of a social media campaign had some good videos and some good 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 interviews. Kit Malthouse was running on his platform of just basically building more houses and fixing schools. But really, they just didn't get the critical mass. And so they decided just to step back. And interestingly, they were both deputy mayors under Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London. So you could probably have a good guess where they may end up.
0: I think we're going to see potentially Andrea Leadsom, Mark Harper, possibly even Rory Stewart going to have to drop out on Monday because they won't have the eight MPs they need to just get on the list to actually start off the contest. But as you say, the reason to do it is to get a cabinet job, to raise your profile, get yourself in the newspapers. It's sort of tactical, and also if you have a small group of MPs with you you then have this little army that you can then march behind another candidate and so it gives you a little bit of clout in the race that then follows
1: Yeah and then Robert to go back to your original point of that fight for second place let's just see where the overall race is at the moment because it's it's not been a good week for Dominic Raab I think it's been a slightly better week for Sajid Javid that he did an event with British Future the think tank which focuses on identity and the future of Britain and its makeup, and he talked a lot there quite passionately about his backstory which has been what's so missing from his campaign before i know you've always said if you have a good backstory it's just you haven't got a good front story but i do think that he's doing better on that front jeremy hunt as well seems to be doing okay in that race as well
4: so at this stage who would you say is the best bet for second place well i'm actually going to stick doggedly to my position on this, which is that until we see the results of the first ballot, it is not possible to say, because the truth is, this is a, an iceberg campaign, and only a certain amount of this is sticking up above the water so far. What we're seeing is the hollowing out of the edge case candidates. The main figures are going to tussle out. So you've got Jeremy Hunt, Michael Gove, Matt Hancock, and maybe Sajid Javid, tussling for that position, in my opinion. And it's... So you're going, taking Rob out of that I, now. I think I am. I'm prepared to stick my neck out that much. I think I am taking him out. I think Boris is hoovering up the Brexiters. And so my guess is that it's going to come down to quite a narrow number of votes. They're all at the moment in declarations, I think in the 20s, such as a bit less, as I recall. And so... It's about which one of them looks to be breaking free in the days ahead. I think of them that Matt Hancock is having the most coherent campaign, but he's also slightly further from the Brexit mainstream of the party at the moment. So it's hard to say. The truth is those four are running a decent campaign. Michael Gove hasn't done that much yet, but until we see which one the MPs favour, it isn't saying to talk about which one's going to get it.
1: Yes, as I probably see at the moment, Laura, obviously Boris is clearly first, he's got 40 plus MPs and as Robert said, there's probably a lot more behind the scenes as well. And then Jeremy Hunt is thought to have a lot of support from the middle of the party. And then it's really about where it goes from there because Matt Hancock is clearly doing well. And if you're in a situation where he came ahead next Thursday of Sanju David or even maybe Dominic Raab as well, then that really does change the dynamic of the top race and will put pressure on folks like Rory to back out and rally behind him and as the Cameroon centrist candidate.
0: Yeah, that is exactly what he is. And for any MP that's a bit nervous of Boris Johnson being a Marmite figure, not actually appealing to younger voters, they will go for Matt. And what people have been saying is if you're going to go for someone who's the opposite of Boris, who stands for something else, why not go for the shiny young version over Jeremy Hunt, for example? Let's go for the young one. Let's take a bit of a risk. But then... There is also the question of whether or not Matt Hancock is the one to take on Jeremy Corbyn. He actually said he was an anti Semite earlier this week, which provoked a row with the Labour Party. So he's throwing some punches. He's swearing a lot. He's clearly trying to appeal to younger people. But again, when it comes to the actual Tory party membership, who are they going to back?
1: And I think the issue is that the candidates who, like Boris, who seem to be leading the race, the ones who are talking about the Brexit party and Jeremy Corbyn, what Matt Hancock is saying, which is just as important, but Tories don't really want to hear, is the Liberal Democrats. Because we've seen consistently in the Tory shires, their vote is getting chipped away. So really, the Tories, whoever they choose, have got a very difficult challenge ahead of them because they've got to get votes back from the Brexit Party, get votes back from the Liberal Democrats and convince over those marginal seats and not lose too many votes in metropolitan. It's going to be a very tough challenge, Robert. It is.
4: I want to go back to the point about who you choose to be the second candidate against Boris. I think it boils down to this. What is it that Boris lacks if you are a Conservative MP? If you're choosing, what is it that worries you about him? And there are two things that worry people. Number one, obviously, is that he might betray whichever cause they think he's supporting because he's been malleable in the past. And number two is that he has a very, very poor track record in office of any kind. And he has always shown himself to be... Bad on detail and not putting in the work. Therefore, what you're looking for as a potential candidate against him is someone who can just say, "Look, we all love Boris, but he's just not reliable. He just can't deliver. He won't do the job well in the end." And so, I think it's very much a contest to be the competence candidate and one who can go to the voters in the month or so of the contest when they get interviewed by Andrew Neil and people like that, and when Boris wobbles when he has his moment that he will probably have. You say, look, see, this is what we said. Now let's go for someone competent. And I think that's what they're going for. And I think the Lib Dem point goes to the same thing, which is people who are minded to peel off the Lib Dems at the moment from the Conservative Party, obviously primarily they're about Remain, but it's also about you people just don't look like a competent, serious government anymore. And I can't vote for Jeremy Corbyn, so I'm going Lib Dems. So getting just a bit of competence back, is a big part of this.
0: And the anti-business line exactly. from Boris is going to be a huge problem for lots of Tory voters.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. If you want to follow more from the Conservative Party Leadership Contest, then
4: do check Did out... you say it was your stag weekend this week, sir? <laughs>
1: And that's it for this week's episode. If you'd like to follow more from the Conservative Party Leadership Contest, then you can find our new interactive database on ft.com which has all the latest polls, the odds, who's backing whom, and you can search your MP to see where they're standing. Thanks very much to Robert, Laura, George and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you'd like to see more FT journalism, then do check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening.
2: Planning for your next trip?